You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. Well, as we've been following Jesus through the Gospel of Mark over the past six, seven months, we've already witnessed much about his life, right? We've, we've witnessed his claims, his power, his message, his authority. We've seen his enemies. We've also seen his disciples. And if you remember back to the beginning of the book, uh, we were introduced to a man who was cloaked in camel hair, and he had locust and honey breath. And this was the very last and final prophet, John the Baptist. And he was the forerunner of Jesus Christ, baptizing everyone that he could, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then this lowly man from Nazareth appears on the scene, John's cousin, who we we then witness being baptized by John. We see Jesus being baptized by John. But this baptism stands out among the rest. Remember, as Jesus was was plunged beneath the water, the heavens tore open and the Holy Spirit powerfully but gently descended upon the face of Christ like a dove. And then the Father from heaven proclaimed that this 30-year-old carpenter's son from the backwoods of Nazareth was, in fact, his very own beloved son. He was the son of God. He is the promised Messiah with whom God is well pleased. And then as Mark records in his short, punchy style, right, he immediately reveals that Jesus is thrust into the desert to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. But instead of failing... Instead of failing and succumbing to the temptation like Israel and like every one of us, Jesus prevails where we fail. And then, hot off the heels of that victory, Jesus then calls his disciples. Remember the first, right? Simon, Andrew, James, and John. Two sets of brothers, hard-working fishermen. Remember what he said to them? He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And then how does Mark say that they respond? He says, immediately they left their nets and they followed him, right? In chapter 1, verse 17. They didn't wait around. They weren't trying to get their affairs in order first. They weren't trying to postpone anything. They left everything. They left everything they knew, money, obligations, careers, and family to follow Jesus. And they would go with him wherever he would go. And this also happened as he called the rest of his disciples. Remember Matthew, the tax collector, a despised and lowly man. Jesus calls him. We've got Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, another James, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and also Judas Iscariot, the one that's going to betray him. All of them left their ordinary lives, and they were catapulted into the most awesome adventure, the greatest mission you could ever think of with great apostolic purpose. I just want us to stop and think about that for a minute. That's basically everything that we have seen up to this point. And think about those disciples. 
think about it. Try to put yourself there with them. They got to walk with Jesus. They got to listen to Jesus. They got to talk with Jesus face to face. They got to observe Jesus. They got front row seats to the everlasting king and savior of the world on earth, God with us. They witnessed firsthand Jesus powerfully displaying his authority. Remember, in his teaching, his his authority and power in healing and delivering people from demons. Last week, we witnessed uh, a woman being fully healed of a 12-year disease, and she was unclean. She was unfixable. But by her faith and by Jesus Christ, she was healed. And then for the very first time in this gospel last week, we witnessed him raise a little precious 12-year-old daughter from the dead. This, blows, this should blow our minds away. We, we need to try to place ourselves in their sandals, put on their tunics, and try to see through their eyes. And that's why we got God's word. We get to see through their eyes. But today and next week, we're going to see a major shift in the story. A major shift in the days ahead. Pretty soon, Jesus is going to multiply himself into these 12 men. In fact, he's going to be sending them out next week. But before he does, in Mark chapter 6, verse 1 to 6, we're going to see him take them to his hometown of Nazareth. And through his interactions there with the people, we see him preparing his disciples for what's ahead. Showing them the reality of the mission. When you're walking with Jesus, there is going to be some real realities coming at you. And that instead of acceptance, by and large, going gospel disciples are going to face opposition. We are. Chapter 6, verse 1. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. We're going to see this today. He went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out and he went about among the villages teaching. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us the gospel of Mark. We thank you that John Mark uh, took the recollections of Peter and wrote them down. We thank you that all scripture is breathed out by you. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. Thank you for teaching us through your word always. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be working among us through your word. We pray that your spirit would be opening our hearts and our eyes to see what you have here before us today. And as we look at these disciples, we remember that we are disciples. 
We remember that we have much to learn for the mission at hand and that we are going to face opposition. Lord, use your word today on us. Again, we ask for you to mold us into your image. Help us to reflect your glory in this world. We pray that you would move our feet in the mission of every week as we go to work, as we go to school, as we interact with the world around us. We're going to face opposition, but you are with us and you are faithful, and we trust you in that. And so, Lord, would you speak to us today? Move me aside. Preach your word to your people through your word, we pray in Christ's name. All right, so we're in chapter 6. So as we've seen God, we've seen Jesus preparing his disciples for opposition, we need to remember that we are also walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ right through the pages of Scripture. And Jesus is also preparing us for the mission ahead. Remember, we are gospel-going disciples, and we're going to face persecution. We're going to face opposition. And we're going to see this morning from this text that we can be prepared in four different ways. We can get ready for the mission at hand. And so let me ask you, are you ready? Are you ready for the mission ahead? Are you ready for the opposition of the gospel in front of you? We need to get ready for this. And so from verses 1 to 3a, we're going to see that we need to get ready. And we're going to see that we need to get ready to be ridiculed. Get ready to be ridiculed because the reality of Jesus will be misunderstood. He will be misunderstood. So as we start this, we see that that, uh, he went away from there in the text. Verse 1 really means that uh, he's, he's left Capernaum. Remember, he just healed the little girl, healed the lady of the 12-year disease, and now he's coming to his hometown. He went away from there and came to his hometown. His hometown is Nazareth. And then we see his disciples followed him. So the first thing that we see here, we see them leaving the bustling shores of Galilee, and then he's taking his disciples 25 miles southwest, and this is his hometown of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth, if you can remember, uh, it's kind of a backwoods town. Remember that? It had a population of about 500 people. It was a farming community, kind of a blue-collar community. And the town of Nazareth appears nowhere in the Old Testament. It doesn't even appear in any kind of secondary Jewish writings. It doesn't even appear in, in Josephus' writing. He was the great historian at that time. Josephus doesn't even mention it. It was a dead-end kind of a town. It wasn't a destination city. It was way off of the beaten path. Even one of Jesus' disciples, Nathaniel, said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, that's the kind of place where Jesus comes from. And that's where he's taking his disciples. And I love this. Wherever Jesus goes, and Nazareth is not an appealing place, wherever he goes, his disciples go with him. The text says that they followed him. Because that's what Christ followers do. We follow Jesus wherever he goes. And so as they follow him, they arrive in Nazareth, and then the Sabbath comes. And then we see Jesus teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath, verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. 
So at this time, we need to also remember that traveling rabbis were, were always welcome to teach and to read the scrolls, read the scriptures in the local synagogues. And Jesus, uh, although everybody knew that he was this local townsman, that's all they knew about him, um, they knew that he was also wild, widely known throughout Galilee for his miracles and also for his teaching. And so there would have been a certain group of people who would have been eager to hear him teach. And so he's teaching. But as he taught, we soon see that the locals were astonished. The text says here, many who heard him were astonished. Now the word astonished here, in the original sense, is, is, is amazed, overwhelmed. But it's almost, it's in a negative sense in this case. Because the original sense is that they would have been amazed and astonished to the point of losing their minds. And so in their wild amazement, their response was not to fall at the feet of Jesus in worship as we've seen so many times before. But instead, what we see here, in their astonishment, they start to question Jesus. And they start to ridicule him. They ridicule ridicule the reality of Jesus. They were saying, where did this man, have a look at that for a minute. Where did this man, notice, they don't even use his name. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Question mark. Notice, they're not denying that, that Jesus has done great things. But what we see here is that their unbelief has led them not to be in awe of who Jesus is, but instead to be sinfully leading themselves to scoff and ridicule him. Where? What? How? Who is this guy, really? And in their ridicule, we see them questioning Jesus' source of power. Where did he get it? How does he do these miracles? They're also questioning his source of wisdom. Where does this wisdom come from that is given to him? It can't be from God. This is just the carpenter's boy. Kind of like the Pharisees, as we've already seen, um, questioning his power, saying it can't be from God. It must be from somewhere else. Because Jesus was just a normal Joe Blow from Nazareth. And so they begin to question, they begin to ridicule. Verse 3, is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary? Brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? Basically what we're seeing, in their astonishment, they can't harmonize his power and his miracles and his authority with this carpenter, this carpenter's son with this son of Mary, with this guy that just has two brothers and a number of sisters. Can't be from God. Now on a side note, as we look at Jesus here with his family, I love how we see Jesus being a part of a, of a bigger family here. Of course, he is the oldest. And he is, what this shows us here, again, is his humanity, that he, he, is, he is 100% God, yes, and he is 100% man. He belongs to an earthly family. He's the oldest brother. 
And another thing I love about this is that it, just, it blows away. It completely blows away the Roman Catholic Church's teaching of Mary's perpetual virginity. These are his real brothers and sisters. And he is the oldest. But as we look at the people, what we see here ultimately is that instead of awe, there was only ridicule from Jesus' very own community. They misunderstood him. They weren't getting it. Not because of the overwhelming evidence, but because of their overwhelming unbelief. And so what do we take away from this first section? If Jesus was ridiculed, and as he's preparing his disciples to be ridiculed, we as disciples are going to be ridiculed. We need to apply this to ourselves. We need to get ready to be ridiculed. We need to prepare ourselves for that because the reality of Jesus will be misunderstood. As you look at this text, if the people who actually saw Jesus and saw his miracles and heard his teaching, if they still chose to ridicule him, that kind of rocks our common understanding, right? That seeing is believing. They seen it, and they chose not to believe. And how much more do we in our society today continue to ridicule the reality of Jesus? And especially at this time of year, leading up to Easter, you're going to see it on the television, shows trying to discount the reality of Jesus Christ, trying to deny that Mary was a virgin, trying to explain away all the miracles with natural events, trying to explain away the cross, trying to say that Jesus really didn't die, his body was stolen, or, or he just kind of fell asleep, he swooned on the cross. The world misunderstands Jesus. They don't believe that a Roman cross that is 100% effective actually killed him. They try to explain him away. But again, the main problem is not evidence. Right? It's not evidence. The evidence of Jesus' reality and deity are overwhelming. What's the problem then? The problem is unbelieving hearts. And unbelief always leads to ridiculing God. John Stott said this. He said, unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. Its sinfulness lies in the fact that it contradicts the word of the one true God and thus attributes falsehoods to him. Unbelief is not believing in who Jesus is and ascribing lies to God. It's not true. How do we look at that for ourselves? If we're an unbeliever here this morning, if we're an unbeliever, and you're still questioning the reality of Jesus Christ, we need to ask you, and you need to ask yourself, am I truly seeking answers for my questions? The questions about who he was, where he got his power, how he healed people, how he did all these mighty works. Are you honestly asking those questions from the text and from history? Or are you blindly questioning him? Are you working from little knowledge? 
Maybe you're thinking he's not God. Maybe it's all a lie. Maybe it's all a story made up by men. Maybe my friends, maybe my teachers, maybe my professors and my coworkers are right. Maybe they're all right. And if that's you this morning, I ask you to not make these claims, not make these questions in a vacuum of no knowledge. You need to study the scriptures like a Berean. See if these things are true. Look at history. See how all of these things line up. Don't blindly question. Don't trust the world and what the world wants to tell you. Look at the facts of Scripture. Study it. And then ask the Lord to show it to you. Never, ever pit science against the reality of God. Because when you really study the world and you logically look at the intricacies and the beauty and the magnificence and the power on display in our world and in our universe, you cannot deny that God exists. Science does not point away from God. The universe screams that God is real. The heavens declare what? The glory of God. The sky above proclaims what? His handiwork. So real, concrete science never points away from God. Never. It always points to him. They used to say that science was the handmaiden of the church. And as you look at the testimony of Jesus in the scriptures, and as you see his miracles, you see his authority, you see his power, you see his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. As you see his salvation on that cross for you, you need to behold the beauty. Behold the beauty of what he has done and who he is. These things are from God. His wisdom is from God. His mighty works are from above it's like the words of Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus is God. And for those of us who are saved, those of us here, we are disciples. We're the ones who are following Jesus. We are gospel goers. Jesus goes with us always. And what we need to do is simply prepare ourselves for opposition that is coming. We need to expect it. We need to get ready to be ridiculed. Expect it. People are going to think that we're old school, that we're traditionalists, that we're narrow-minded. They're going to call us names. They want to laugh at us because we believe in God's power to create the whole universe in six days, six literal days. They're going to laugh at us about that. They're going to label us abusive because we believe that gender is determined by God's hand in DNA and it's verified by the physical reality. They're going to say that we're anti-woman because we believe that a baby is a person at, con at conception because we believe that abortion is murder. I just heard this past week about a new website that is, uh, is out trying to expose every church that is not gay-affirming. They want to say that we're guilty of hate speech and that, we should go to, that I should go to jail if I speak what the Bible says about sexuality. 
They want to label us misogynistic because we believe that, that women and men have equal yet distinct roles in the home and in the church. They want to tell us that we, that we serve an unfair God and that Jesus is a joke. They're going to ridicule us. This is the world around you. Prepare yourselves for that. And it's only going to get worse. But the end is coming. Brothers and sisters, we need to be prepared. We need to expect this. We're going to be ridiculed. Because the reality of Jesus will be misunderstood. And so as the reality of Jesus was questioned here, as we see him being mocked here, we see on top of that ridicule, in the last half of verse 3, we, say, we see this. It says, and they took offense at him. They took offense at him. This word being translated offense comes from the Greek word scandalizo, which means to be filled with disgust or revulsed. To the point of stumbling, to the point of sinning. We see that Mark uses this word eight times in his gospel, and every time he uses it, it refers to preventing someone from coming to faith in Jesus. And that's exactly what we see here. They took offense at his claims. They took offense to the point of, of resisting the truth and choosing to continue in their unbelief. And so as these disciples, as we observe their reaction, or as the disciples are observing their reaction, they're going to see that the person of Jesus will be offensive. He's not always going to receive a warm reception, right? In fact, the closer that he moves towards Jerusalem and to the cross, we're going to see that the world is all the more offended at him. And what the disciples are seeing clearly here is that if they go with him, if they follow him, and then later as they represent him as his apostles, they too are going to be resisted. And so they need to get ready. And they need to prepare themselves for it. And the same goes for us. Brothers and sisters, prepare yourselves. Get ready to be resisted. Because the person of Jesus will be offensive. Now, as you study the Gospels, you realize that this is not the first time that Jesus has been in Nazareth. It's not the first time he offended people there. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus was in Nazareth soon after his temptation in the desert. And as he was in the synagogue back then, he was reading from the Isaiah scrolls and he was claiming that the fulfillment of Isaiah was fulfilled in him. But instead of the people being in awe of him and believing him, they were extremely angry. Remember Luke chapter 4, verse 28 to 29, it says, All in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built. Why? So that they could throw him down the cliff. They were so upset with him, they wanted him gone. They wanted him dead. They were violently resisting who he claimed to be. We need to get ready for that. 
We need to get ready for the fact that the message of the person of Jesus Christ that we have will be resisted. The message of Jesus Christ is both the most loving thing you could ever share with the world, and it's also the most offensive thing that you can ever share with the world. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2.7, speaking about unbelievers, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected, that's Jesus, has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For the Jewish people, Jesus is the Messiah. They missed him. They stumbled upon him. He is offensive to them. And Jesus becomes the cornerstone of the church. So instead of seeing him as the foundation, unbelievers will always see Jesus as offensive. They see him as a message of foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is what? It is the power of God. Our suffering Savior was both ridiculed and resisted by his very own people. The gospel is offensive. It's offensive. Why? The gospel is offensive because it's the truth. It's the truth of sin in light of a holy God. It's a truth, it's the truth that there is heaven and there is hell. And at the cross, there are only two ways to respond. You either believe and embrace the true person of Jesus Christ, or you continue in your unbelief and you resist him at all cost. The cost of eternity. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? I always find it unbelievable how something can be either the most glorious and magnificent truth to some, but also the most hated and disastrous truth for others. Just think about that person that you want saved so bad. You shared the gospel with them over and over and over again, and they're still not believing. And you think to yourself, why would you reject such a glorious, beautiful truth, the only truth? And then I'm reminded by God's word that, that the God of this world has blinded their eyes. That they've also blinded their own eyes because of their sin. It reminds me of Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Since the garden, we've not want to be ruled, right? We think that our ways are best. Like Isaiah said in 53 verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. In our natural fallenness, we don't want the gospel. We don't want change. And so we see that in these fellow townspeople of Nazareth. They don't like Jesus. They don't believe in him. And they definitely don't want to follow him. And so what do they do? They resist him. 
They are offended by him. And they do that to their eternal destruction. The person of Jesus will be offensive. And because we are his, and he is always with us, we need to get ready to be resisted. Get ready to be resisted. Ask yourselves, am I being ridiculed? Am I being resisted? Am I being opposed because the name of Jesus is written on my heart? Are people being offended by the truth that I share with them, the person of Jesus Christ? Do they respond to me with a stop sign? This far, no further. The gospel is offensive. We've got to be careful with this too. The gospel is offensive. We're not offensive. I mean, we need to make sure that the reason that somebody is offended by us is not because we, in our person and in our delivery and in our heart, are offensive. Do you know what I mean? Like sometimes, well-meaning Christians can come across cold. They can come across hard. They can come across uncompassionate. They forget that they need to speak the truth in love. Just take a little tour on Twitter, Facebook. Or that angry-faced street preacher bellering on the corner, crying out, turn or burn. Don't get me wrong, I love street preaching. I love street evangelism. We need to be doing more of that. How about how we engage people on the internet, right? There's a way that we go about doing this. We have to have compassion. We need to have a heart of love. We need to be broken for those people that are in their situation. Yes, it is their sin. They are responsible for it. We need to have the mind of Christ. Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because why? Because they were harassed and they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So this doesn't mean that we don't share the truth. We absolutely must. But let's let the gospel offend. Let's not let our approach offend, okay? Because the gospel is offensive. We need to lovingly unleash that to the world. Let God do his work and then get ready Get ready to see Jesus work or get ready to see that you will be resisted. Next, as we look at these disciples, they're observing all of this and they're seeing this and we're seeing this. The next thing we need to get ready to do is is get ready to be rejected. Get ready to be rejected. The presence of Jesus will be divisive. Verse 4, as these people had enough of this local man claiming to be God, and as they were completely offended by him, Jesus responds in verse 4. Jesus says to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. You ever have that person from your hometown? Maybe you're from a, a smaller town, whatever it is, and that person goes off to do some great things. Maybe they become famous. 
Maybe there's some acclaimed hockey player or a musician or an actor or a politician. And you hear about their fame, you hear about their prestige, and then they come home. And instead of honoring that person, in your heart you think badly of them. Like, who does that guy think he is? I knew him when he was a little brat. Or who does she think she is? How can she be a respected politician? I knew her and how she behaved when she was a teenager. Well, as Jesus comes home, and we see that, that he's being ridiculed and he is being reviled, we see similar rejection to him. But more than somebody that's just famous or who's done some great things, Jesus was wildly and widely regarded in Galilee as the most powerful prophet and healer anybody has ever seen. And so those in Nazareth would have known this. But yet the closest 500 people in that town who, who witnessed Jesus growing up, who witnessed his life for 30 years, what do they do when he comes home? They reject him. They reject his very presence. And Jesus responds to their unbelief. He sees that his whole hometown, all the way to his relatives, and even his own brothers and sisters reject him. Everywhere else, people are mobbing to get to him. Remember in, in Capernaum, there were so many people trying to get to Jesus and disciples, they couldn't even eat. But not here, not in Nazareth. Not his neighbors, not his aunts, not his uncles and his cousins, not his brothers and sisters. By and large, his people rejected him. The very presence of Jesus is divisive between him and everybody that he knew in Nazareth. I don't know if you've experienced that yet in your faith. Have you experienced that, being a Christian? Has your faith been divisive in your relationships with your friends with your family, with your relatives, even your close personal family? Has there been divisiveness because of your faith? Has anyone you've known rejected you because you belong to Jesus? Do your coworkers think that you're weird because you're a Christian? Do your old friends avoid you because you're no fun anymore? Are they getting tired of how you keep talking about this Jesus? Are they, are they not answering your texts or your phone calls because you're trying to get them to come to church with you? How about your family? Does your family think that you're crazy because you follow this book and this Savior? Because you would go wherever Jesus will take you. Do they think that you're crazy? I think... We have experienced some of that in, in our family. I, I, I know that some of our family think that we're crazy, right? To leave the life we had and to follow Jesus to here today. Maybe some close families have completely disassociated themselves from you. Maybe they've unfriended you. Maybe they've blocked you, right? 
because of your faith. Does that bother you? Take comfort. Take comfort when these things are happening. Be encouraged that they're rejecting you. I know that's kind of strange to think about, but be encouraged by that because we are promised this. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You will be persecuted. If you desire to follow Jesus, you will be persecuted. And so take courage. Be comforted in this. If they reject you because of Jesus, and remember, not because of your approach, but if they reject you because of Jesus, you're on the right side. You're obviously truly living out your faith. Take comfort in that. Jesus was rejected. His disciples were rejected. And I'm promised to be rejected. John 15, 18 to 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. That's what Jesus is saying. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Be encouraged. Our purpose is not to go out to look for rejection, right? We're not going out of these doors. I want to be rejected today. I want to be persecuted today. But the reality is this. Is if, but if we are with Jesus and he is with us, we are going to be rejected. Jesus already told his disciples back in chapter 3 that his true family was who? It was his disciples, right? He looked at the, the disciples in front of him and he said, this is my mother, these are my brothers and sisters. His disciples are his family and our family is going to reject us. They are. We pursue them, but they're going to reject us. Some are going to come, we pray but they're going to reject us. But this is our true and eternal family. And it is, it's, it's double sweet when your blood family is a part of your eternal family. You got, you got them on both sides. It's, it's, it's amazing. But often that's not the case. And so as we see Jesus here experiencing this rejection, we're reminded about the lesson that's being taught here. As the disciples are, are following Jesus, they're not saying anything in the scriptures. They're watching. They're taking it all in and they're learning. And they're learning that they're going to be rejected because they've been with Jesus Christ. And the same goes for us. We need to get ready to be rejected because the presence of Jesus will be divisive. Get ready to be ridiculed. Get ready to be resisted. Get ready to be rejected. And lastly, in verses 5 to 6, we see that we need to get ready to retreat. We need to get ready to retreat. The gospel of Jesus must advance. Verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he, he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled at, he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Just think about that for a moment. 
in, in, in Capernaum and throughout Judea and, and in Galilee, people were marveling at Jesus. And then we see him here looking at his hometown, marveling at their unbelief. This is his hometown. Where was their faith? Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. And it was evident in the ministry that God was doing there. Verse 5 says, he could do no mighty work there. Except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Just a few. That's not what we've seen in Capernaum, right? Mobs and mobs and thousands of people from sunup to sundown. Demons were being cast out left and right. People were being healed of their sickness. Lepers and paralytics were jumping for joy at the work of Jesus' hands. Dead people were coming to life. And he was teaching with such powerful authority. But we see here that only a few, only a few people were healed. And his teaching was rejected. Nazareth was dead. These people loved their sin more than the thought of a savior. Their hearts were hard and they liked it that way. Jesus was marveling at this. But what was true was that in the sovereign mystery of God to produce faith, it just wasn't happening in Nazareth. You know, it's interesting. As you study church history, the little town of Nazareth remained an unbelieving town. It remained unchanged for a very long time. Even as the early church exploded in Acts in the first century and it went to the furthest reaches of the known world through the apostles, Nazareth remained cold. It remained dead. History tells us that it stayed that way for at least 300 years. The very hometown of the Savior of the world, such irony here, but such truth. This hometown stayed dead, unbelieving. In fact, the very first church that we ever hear about being established in Nazareth wasn't established until Rome became a Christian nation under uh, the ruler, uh, the emperor Constantine in 325. And even in that, the church that was established there was, was established as a commemorative site because that's where Jesus was from. It was Jesus' hometown. Jesus marveled at the unwillingness of his own people to believe and they ridiculed him, they resisted him, and they rejected him. The commentator Edward says, The greatest obstacle to faith is not the failure of God to act, but the unwillingness of the human heart to accept the God who condescends to us in only a carpenter, the son of Mary. And so what does Jesus do? How does he respond how are his watching disciples to respond when they're going to face these same things? And how are we to respond when we see these same things? 
The text says, and he went on. And he went about among the villages teaching. He leaves. He moves on. Because the kingdom of God, the gospel, needs to be advanced. So brothers and sisters, if you're faithfully following Jesus, if you're a gospel-going disciple, you're going to face this. We're going to face this. Maybe you already are. You're going to minister to the lost And you're going to pursue certain people. You're going to share the message of Jesus over and over and over again to the same person over and over again or to a group of people. You're going to to share with them that their sin has been offensive to a holy God and that their sin has separated them from God. And that in that, they are storing up wrath against themselves from God. And then you're going to tell them that, but God so loved the world, and him being so rich in mercy and grace sends himself. He sent himself. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. To do what? To live a perfect, sinless life that we couldn't live. A life that we could never live. And that he willingly, that he willingly suffered and died on a Roman cross That every one of us deserved. So that we could be saved from our sins. So that we could be made right with God. We could be at peace with God. So that we could be forgiven every sin, past, present, future. So that we can be united to him again. So that we can freely worship God again. You're going to share that with the world. And they're going to reject it. Perhaps you've shared that over and over and over again with somebody and and you've answered their questions, you've prayed for them and you've prayed for them and you've prayed for them and God has not opened their eyes and their ears. Yes, we pursue. We pursue and we pray. We exhaust ourselves for the kingdom of God, but we're not God. We must trust that we have done everything that we can, that we have been faithful. But if that person that you are pursuing is only putting up stop signs and they're ridiculing you, they're resisting you, they're rejecting you, and you're sure that they know that you love them, that your heart is in the right place for them, and that they've heard that gospel so many times, by the example of Jesus, what do you do? You've done all you can. The gospel must advance. And so it's time to retreat to the next village. It's time to go to the next person. It's time to continue teaching. It's time to move on. You have to keep on sharing the gospel. Perhaps the fishing hole is dry. What do you do when you go fishing and it dries up? You got to go find another hole. And it's okay. It's okay to move on. You need to go to those who God has prepared ahead of you. You have to trust in his sovereign hand and that he is always right. Remember back to the parable of the soils. 
four soils, only one soil receives the seed and produces fruit, right? Remember that he is sovereign. He is the one that prepares the soil. We cast the seed everywhere, and then we move on and we keep on casting the seed. And we trust him in what he has done. And so although Nazareth has ridiculed Jesus, has resisted Jesus, has rejected Jesus, Jesus retreats. So remember that in God's sovereignty, that he is over this. And it's okay. And we must see the gospel advance. What's kind of comforting, or what is comforting, is to know that even though Nazareth rejected Jesus, and even though his family, remember they were questioning him? Remember uh, they thought that he was crazy? They went to go and get him to bring him back. Even though they were rejecting him, what happens to them? His mother follows him. His brother James becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. His brother Judas writes the book of Jude. They follow him. They come back to him. That should give us some comfort regarding our own families, our own friends, our own co-workers, the people that we think have dried up and are, are, are not savable. We're trusting Jesus in his sovereign hand to do his work with the word that was spread to them. We go on, leave it with God. Doesn't mean that when they come with their questions, we don't respond. We continue to do that. But there's, the gospel has to advance. We need to trust him. We need to keep praying that they may ultimately come to faith because of the faithfulness of Christ. And so as we looked at this this morning, we need to remember those four things we need to get ready for. Get ready to be ridiculed because the reality of Jesus will be misunderstood. Get ready to be resisted. The person of Jesus will be offensive. Get ready to be rejected. The presence of Jesus will be divisive. And get ready to retreat because the gospel of Jesus must advance. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again that you are always faithful to teach us by your word. We thank you that your spirit is always here among us, illuminating your text to us, showing us what we need to take home. We thank you that your word always applies. It's not just head knowledge. It's not just facts for us to uh, tumble around in our head. It has to be applied to the heart, and then we pray that it would be transferred to action by our hands. And so as we look at this, Lord, we see that we are your disciples, and we see you preparing your disciples to be opposed. Lord, we take comfort in some of this. We see you in your sovereignty in, in some of this. Our hearts break for those who continually hard their, harden their hearts in unbelief. And we thank you, Lord, that what we're seeing here is there is hard work at hand ahead of us. And we need to go to hard places like Nazareth. And in many ways, Calgary is a hard place. Thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for bringing us here to the southeast corner of Calgary where there's a lot of hard hearts. May our hearts break for them. Send us to them. 
Help us to exhaust ourselves for the salvation of those souls. But we also trust you. We know that you are sovereign. Use us, Lord. We know that we have only scratched the surface here. Use this church. Use these people to get glory for yourself through the salvation of sinners. We thank you. And we look forward to next week where we see that you're going to send your apostles out. And they're going to go for you. We pray that you would motivate our hearts again today to be about the work of Jesus Christ. That we'd be about the mission. We would be about the person of Jesus Christ. The message of Jesus Christ. And that the power of Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel, saves the most unreachable, unfixable people. We thank you for this in the name of Christ. Amen.